Hi, and welcome to the Musician's Toolbox podcast. I'm Angela. And I'm Andrew. And we're here um, as a podcast because we want to help musicians become better musicians. The, the goal that we have is that we find professionals in the industry and ask them questions that will help you as a listener uh, understand maybe the things that they've struggled with, that they were able to get past, or um, just have certain things that they they found out and wish they'd known when they started. And so this podcast is for you if you want to be a professional musician or if you're just an amateur and you're looking to improve on your skills. Um, we do not discriminate. It doesn't matter what genre you play, but we we believe that the things that we're talking about here not only will help you be a better musician, but a better human and have more success in your life. So welcome to the Musician's Toolbox. And today, Andrew's going to introduce our guest. Yes, I'm excited for today's interview. Today we'll be talking to uh, Dr. Ben Britton. He has earned a master's in saxophone jazz performance from the Manhattan School of Music and also a doctor in jazz studies at the Eastman School of Music. Uh, currently, he teaches jazz and woodwinds at the College of Southern Idaho, and he has also written many uh, saxophone books. Earlier in 2008, Ben performed on a live album, Tito Puente Masterworks Live, which was led by Bobby Sanabria which I don't know who that was, but I'm sure those of it's you a big who, deal. yeah, I'm sure those of you <laughs> who know the jazz realm know who that is. Um, and that album was also nominated for the best Latin jazz album in the 2011 Latin Grammys. He's also competed in the Detroit Jazz uh, Festival National Saxophone Competition and won first annual Charlie Parker Cutting Contest hosted by NPR's 12th Street Jump. And lastly, some of the topics that we'd like to focus on today is that he has produced many albums and is an avid composer. He's also written a fictional novel, Gravity Leak, which is in the publishing stages and accompanying album of music. So I think that intersection of music and writing will be interesting to talk to him about. So we are so glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. This is fun. Now, I, I know I just read your bio, but... Are there any mentors, experiences, or relationships that you think were interesting or meaningful uh, for your life that we didn't mention? Cool, yeah. So I was thinking about this question, um, and I thought I'd frame it in a way that might be helpful uh, for aspiring musicians. So um, the, the, one of my first thoughts was that mentors um, can be really helpful in developing your, mu your, your musical skills or your musicianship. Um, I feel like personally, um, I've grown the most as I've picked a musical role model and really tried to go after the thing that they're so good at and try to improve that in myself. Um, I know some musicians gravitate very easily to this, especially in the jazz world. Um, some of the some of my favorite jazz musicians themselves talk about how they got obsessed with a certain jazz mm -hmm. musician and transcribed all their solos and learned how to play just like them and blah 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 in the classical world i don't hear as many people talk about those kind of things <laughs> though i do hear people talking about um checking out performances of a particular piece they're working on and they really really enjoy that piece or that performance of the piece and so that they they mimic that, but um, but basically, I feel like that is a huge um, uh, a a huge part of my own development was this was this kind of mimicking and emulating and copying, um, and so one of the, one of these guys who I just like to talk about a little bit is Chris Potter, um, probably maybe not a name you guys recognize right off the bat, but he is 
one of the world's current most famous jazz saxophonists for sure. He's he's up he's up there in that in that realm. Um, and um, so basically, you know, some of the things that I did that that made him a mentor to me is first was just you know me by myself. I uh, transcribed a bunch of his stuff. I got as many of his records as I could. I was listening, enjoying it, all that kind of stuff, trying to try, trying to learn from him. And then I uh, contacted him and said, "Hey, can I do a transcription book with you? You know, I have all these transcriptions that I've worked on. Can we can we work together and publish something?" And he was open to the idea, which of course made seventeen-year-old Ben very very excited. <laughs> Woo! Yay! That's awesome. Jazz guys. Yeah. All right, and. Um, and so in that through that process, we actually I never actually did get a book uh, published. I, I had a publisher lined up, but the deal wasn't right for Chris's agent and it just got delayed and delayed and then basically didn't happen, which mm. honestly, in the end, the transcription book is not a huge deal. But what was a huge deal was that relationship and, and, the, and the mentoring that I got. So I had a couple of lessons with him, wow. which uh, which were wow. really great. Um, uh, yeah, there are things from those lessons that have changed how I think and, and about music and how I play a saxophone for sure. Just, you know, um, we got to record together. I invited him to record on my first album, which was, and he came, came and played as a guest artist on two of the songs. That was super fun. Hmm. And then we did a CD release in New York city. Um, and I invited him again to play with us and he played us, played, played that gig with us. So. Yeah, that's awesome. I I love that you, you said you were 17, that sometimes like the naivete of of being young or just not caring. When, I, I mean, of course, you cared when you asked him, but just like not having faced a ton of of rejection. You're just like, hey, why not ask? Because I know that I've <laughs> I've learned a lot just from like our podcast, mm -hmm. asking people to come be guests and realizing how many people are willing to even when I would think that they wouldn't have time for it. So I think that that's awesome. And it became a relationship that lasted for much longer than just what you initially contacted him for. Yeah, it was it was a huge opportunity and blessing for me, for sure. It was a, it was a big deal in my life. Um, I had a couple a couple other guys. I think another big deal is finding the right teacher. Mm -hmm. um, I have, I mean, I have lots of, I've had lots of great music teachers in my life. One of the ones that stand out is a saxophonist named Walt Weisskopf. Um, he's kind of in the mid, the mid range of famous jazz musicians. You know, if you say his name to a saxophonist who is into modern saxophone players, they'll recognize, they'll recognize mm. the name. But anyways, uh, he was the, he was the jazz saxophone teacher Eastman. Mm. And, um, and basically it's funny because he was a little bit of a controversial figure when he was there. He has a very specific kind of approach to teaching. You could almost compare it to like boot camp at the military where it's like you have all of these exercises you're going to do and you're going to do them. You're going to do them in 12 keys and we're going to focus on that at the lesson. I'm going to hear you play in all 12 keys. And if you mess up too bad, keep going. And this kind of this kind of thing. Right. It's, it's a very like uh, routine based kind of a one size fits all kind of deal. Mm. And for me, it was just what I needed. Um, it was it was super fantastic and it got my saxophone playing and technique and and processing music music theory and, and jazz improvisation theory and that kind of stuff onto a much higher level. And um, and I didn't know it at the time when I was like trying to go to Eastman School of Music. That was for my undergrad when he was there. Um, and when I was trying to do that, I didn't realize that he was going to be such a great teacher for me. Mm -hmm. um, but 
after that point, I started to realize that different teachers provide different opportunities and different things and helped me start searching for um, teachers as I, as I went along. Um, that's a hard thing to do though. I, I'll just mm -hmm. admit like sometimes you, you, you're stuck with what you get. Mm -hmm. um, but also at least when you're looking, like if you're uh, you know looking to be a music major at a school someplace out there, people um, then definitely be looking into who the teachers are and not just are they famous or are they awesome, but you know if you can try to find out what they teach and what their what their focus is. So did you have lessons, or did you meet that teacher before you went there, or? So that you... again, I'm I'm saying I wasn't that hip. Okay. I probably should have done that. Uh huh. It just happened and to I be a really good fit for yeah. what you needed. Exactly. Yeah. It, 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 it by happenstance, it worked out perfectly for me. Um, and then in the future, I did try to get lessons with teachers before I, you know, committed. Um, okay. Not always successfully. Some guys are super busy. Yeah. Um, I think it's um, also useful to talk to students in the studio, because uh -huh. one lesson can give you an idea for sure. And sometimes it's like a blaring like go light or blaring stop sign, yeah. but sometimes it's not. And you know, or, or sometimes it's not really what you're going to get. It's a, it's, it's just that one lesson. And then it turns out being really different when you study with them. So I think, you know, speaking to the studio can be helpful too. I think that's awesome advice. I wish I would have done that. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. All right. Last but not least, a uh, compositional mentor that meant a lot to me or means a lot to me is a, is a musician, a guy named Dave Ravello. He's mainly composer and arranger. Uh, he's another guy at Eastman. Um, and so I got to play in his bands, uh, multiple of them. So he leads a big band at the school that's just like one of the academic bands. And I was part of that during my undergrad. And then during my, uh, during my doctoral degree, I also got to play in that group as like a TA basically. And, but he always, he always picks really cool music by new composers or newish composers. And I got exposed to a lot of good music that way. Um, I also studied with him a little bit, just studying jazz composition. And he actually oversaw the project that we'll be talking about eventually this whole, um, uh, compositional slash fictional novel project that I did. He, he was, he was basically my teacher as I was doing the beginning steps of writing that music, um, for that, for that project. Um, anyways, and, and he helped, he helped give me lots of ideas and, um, and inspired my creativity in different ways that I hadn't thought of before. Anyways, and the other, the other big deal why it's, why I think of him is because, um, he's this guy who's in, you know, Rochester in up, upper, uh, upstate New York, where there's besides Eastman, there's not a whole lot going on. I mean, the kids go out and perform, but it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know. I don't, I don't have very fond memories of Rochester outside of the music that gets made there and some of the people and friendships I had, but just like the general area isn't my favorite place. I know other people will say differently, but, um, anyways, but he would, you know, he put together his own small big band there. So it was like, uh, it was nine horns and rhythm section. And the bigger the group gets, the more, the harder to manage. And this is totally outside of the academic world. This is his mm -hmm. own band. He, you know, he organized all the, you know, folders. When I say folders, I mean like a book. It's like, you know, enough charts to play two or three sets that he's written for all. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, and then they're, and then he would regularly perform with this band at like bars and restaurants that were open to having good jazz. Mm -hmm. And it was to any, any, and he did it every year and he does it every year and he's he's 
moved on to bigger i mean he still runs that band but he also has bigger projects and collaborations he does with that band too but for years that's what it was and he did it because he loved his music and he loved music in general and sharing it and composing and and doing all that and i think of him a lot when i when i when i approach projects and i approach composing and things like that just because you i mean you can have the wrong attitude or you can have uh you know you can you can have attitudes that that lead to um disappointment where you're like oh i'm gonna you know write this thing and i'm gonna get a grammy for it or <laughs> whatever it is whatever you whatever you think's gonna happen right whatever measure of success you imagine for it um because you might not get that measure of success in any degree whatever that measure of success is or you can be like him and just be like um i'm just gonna have fun making music and, mm-hmm. and i'm gonna do it at this bar and it's gonna be like some of the most serious jazz you've ever heard you know and it's like you know it'd be yeah. like it's like I wouldn't be surprised to go into one of the hippest clubs in New York City and hear that same music. Mm-hmm. So, cool. anyways, so, those are some of the mentors. Yeah, that's that's cool. And um, I think some people might be wondering. I mean, you've gone to lots of sought-after schools like Eastman and the Manhattan School of Music, um, and some people don't like hear some of the backstories. Maybe there's some some backstories about how the environment is there. Um, but I mean, those, those are huge schools. So if, uh, what have you learned there? What were some of your experiences and what would you say to someone who might be trying to get into Eastman or something like that? Okay. So first of all, Eastman is an amazing place. You cannot be disappointed by that school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that not just because there's great musicians there. There are, mm-hmm. there are lots of great musicians there. Um, and I also don't say it because just because like, oh, the faculty, they hire really good, prof- they do hire really good professors, but there's another thing there. There's this, there's this community there that every, I mean, and it was, it was there both times I was there. There's this really positive vibe. Everyone supports each other. Mm-hmm. Um, or that's what you support each other. There's, you know, there's not a lot of competition there. Of course there's competition, but it's, it's all framed in this. You can do, you can do your best job. You can do great. Um, and, and it just feels really supportive versus a darker competitive competitive vibe that I experienced at a different school, not Manhattan School of Music, mm-hmm. um, but at um, University of North Texas. That's mm-hmm. I actually didn't get into Eastman when I first applied. I, I wanted to go to Eastman since I was like in high school. Mm-hmm. My saxophone teacher, who was who's my lesson teacher growing up, he'd been to Eastman. And he, you know, he'd talk it up all the time. Like, OK, that's where I want to go to school. Yeah. It's, it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I didn't, I didn't make it in when I did my initial audition. Um, I could, I could talk more about that too. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> um, but anyway, so I went to North Texas, which is like a school famous for having nine big bands, lots and lots of players, like a hundred saxophonists in the saxophone studio. Um, you know, it's just kind of insane. It sounds overwhelming. And, <laughs> yeah, it was a little overwhelming, but you, I did find a pocket of a pocket of friends to be, you know, in a group with, and that was fun and inspiring to hear all the different people playing and that kind of thing. But at the same time, there was just a little bit of a, uh, of a dark kind of competitive vibe. Like I remember one, one saxophonist in particular who, who quit the bands a particular semester because he made it to the fourth band. He was, he was in the fourth band and that wasn't good enough. And so, uh. and so he wasn't going to be, he wasn't going to deal with that and he just quit. And then there was a lot of uh, like, um, just kind of like talking bad behind each other's backs that would mm-hmm. happen 
Like that person's not that good at jazz. That person sucks at that kind of thing. And, you know, just a lot of, a lot of that. And, and from other musicians I've talked to over the years, it sounds like that that wasn't just like my experience. It sounds like that was like a thing. I'm not sure how it is now. Mm-hmm. hate to talk bad about places, but, mm-hmm. but anyways, Eastman is just like the complete opposite of that. It was just so, so nice and positive. Mm-hmm. It was a great experience overall. And, um, and so a couple other things I'd say about there, the, um, it feels like the faculty are really trying to be mentors there. And, and, uh, and I guess I've experienced that in lots of different places, but there's just, it's so consistent there that they, think, you know, they try to get your opportunities. Go ahead. Well, I think when, uh, the impression that I obviously have not got, attended all of these really uh, prestigious music schools, but I think the impression I've gotten from friends that have is that you have to be careful if you have like a famous teacher because it, they are they famous because of their performing career or are they famous because they're a really true pedagogue, like you said, and they're, they're concerned. And so what I'm hearing from you is that at Eastman, they weren't, they were equally as concerned with, you know, mentoring their students as they were with whatever their performance um, capacity was that got them that amazing position, um, which I don't think is true of all schools. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it, it does seem to be pretty consistent across the board there that a lot of the professors are very concerned with mentoring and providing opportunities and making sure their teaching is is at a high level and that their students are and and, and sometimes it, it didn't even feel like oh we're super concerned that our teaching's at a high level. Yes, that's part of it, but it's more like I want my students to do really well. Yeah, that's um, huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really nice. Uh, Manhattan School of Music was another fantastic place to be. Um, there, the the talent pool was even greater and more focused. So there were more super talented musicians. Like Eastman was already everyone super talented across the board, but at Manhattan School of Music was like every corner you turn, there's another fantastic musician just blowing everyone away. And you're just like, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the vibe in New York City, right? I mean, that's just mm-hmm. like, I mean, maybe not every school in New York City, but 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 generally there's just so many people there, so much talent, there's so much going on. Um, so, I mean, some of my best experiences there were just getting to play with these really great musicians um, on the weekly basis, you know? Um, actually, here's a fun name drop. Ready for a name drop? Um, actually, we'll come back to the name drop because I'm having <laughs> I'm having trouble remembering the exact name right now. Uh, I'll, I'll just do it anyways. I'll just do it anyways. So the bass player for Soul, the recent Pixar movie, yeah. um, she is a wonderful bass player, and I'm going like this because I can't remember her name. Um, she's a wonderful bass player, and she had been at Manhattan School of Music, like probably the year before me. Um, but they recruited her to play in this group that I was playing in that some of, some of us, some of the master students were playing in and we were putting together a presentation where we we're going to go around to different, uh, elementary schools and middle schools and teach about jazz. It was like the pedagogy class anyway. So she played in our group, uh, at that point before she was really a famous jazz musician since she's gone on to play with lots of famous jazz musicians like Dave Douglas, uh, Joe Lovano and, um, yeah. And she just performed the bass uh, all the bass parts in that mm, movie soul that's cool it's pretty pretty awesome that's really cool and i wish i could remember her name such a loser that's me that's all right so um i'd like to talk a little bit more about how you got into those schools because i know some people kind of look up to eastman and i was actually surprised by what you said about it because i just assume all of the big music schools just have a negative <laughs> uh environment but 
so what what were some things that you learned about getting in there um that other sure. students might uh need sure so it's hard to pinpoint exactly what made the biggest difference mm -hmm. but i mean i think and this is going to sound silly but i think learning how to practice not silly just just cliche mm -hmm. learning how to practice was one of the most important things that that happened for me over the course of my young musical development that eventually led to me actually being able to succeed in those environments um, get into the schools and do well and and that kind of thing um so i remember my senior year was the first time i really buckled down and started practicing hard i'd always been a semi-talented musician a little bit of a standout not necessarily like you know what i mean like you know like like i was looked up to in my high school but like i never made it to all state jazz right like mm -hmm. i was never never that kid um and i played music a lot growing up but i didn't practice it a lot mm -hmm. that makes sense i was always just kind of playing and having fun mm -hmm. what state did you grow up in so a lot of my I, I we were military so we were kind of all over the place but we ended okay. up in maryland which is where my whole high school okay. career happened yeah so in maryland um, anyway, so my senior year, I started practicing hard, but what I practiced hard for was definitely the classical part of the audition. I felt like I had the jazz stuff in the bag, more or less. Mm. That's, that was my attitude at the time. Probably not a good one. No, definitely not a good one. Um, <laughs> I practiced the jazz stuff to some degree, and I had practiced, you know, and, but to be fair, I'd practiced my jazz things uh, more so than classical in the past. Anyway, so I started practicing a lot of, a lot over that year, and I just remember, like, I can still remember mistakes that I made in practicing. Like, I remember, like, there's this one really hard passage in um, in one of the movements, uh, and it has a big high note in it. And, like, I would just run the passage and try and play the high note over and over again. Mm -hmm. It's like, and guess guess what didn't come out in any of my auditions that I remember? <laughs> the high note, right? It just didn't happen. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And I remember having trouble with breath control and not being able to make it to the end of phrases sometimes and stuff like that. And so what would I do? I would just practice the piece over and over again and, and try to focus on breathing well, but, but, you know, but, but basically just running stuff and, and I, and I was smart. Like I knew to like slow stuff down um, to like try to smooth out things, but, but, um, but essentially the smart practice wasn't there. And also it wasn't built on a foundation of good practice beforehand. You know, it was more like, uh, I have this thing coming up, I'm going to practice. Mm -hmm. Anyways, um, so I did get, I, like I told you, I didn't get into Eastman um, when I first auditioned there. Um, I did get into like Berkeley in, uh, again, North Texas. And I ended up choosing North Texas and I went there for a while. Um, and while I was there, I discovered my love for the saxophone as Chris Potter. I started all my transcription work and the transcription work in a way was like regular good practice and it was mm -hmm. jazz practice. I was mm -hmm. really focusing on what I needed to, um, what I, what I needed to do to get better because I was getting new vocabulary in my ears and under my fingers. Um, and I was, you know, I, I was practicing the things that, that will help, turn you into a better improviser and better jazz musician. And actually, I'm pretty sure I didn't get into Eastman, not because of the classical audition necessarily. I think the jazz audition was also a big part of it. Mm -hmm. I don't think my jazz playing was strong enough to get into the jazz jazz part of it. Um, oh, but by the way, even at that audition, I remember uh, Raymond Ricker was uh, the main saxophone professor at the time. He is no longer, he's retired now. But I remember he sat down with me at the end of the audition 
And he was like, look, you're strong, but you, you still have these weaknesses. And I think if you want to re-audition in a future year, you, you could probably make it in if you work on these things. And I don't even remember what he told me. But I just remember him walking through. I remember being very kind and walking me through that. And I've never wow. had that experience cool. at another audition. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I, I have not had that experience at auditions either. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Anyways. Um, and not to say every audition at Eastman is like that, but I'm just saying like sure. that's one one yeah. example. Anyways. Um, yep. Yeah, so I did a bunch of practice. I re-auditioned at Eastman, got in, transferred over. Was that and after one year of being in North Texas? I, so it was a, I did three semesters in North Texas. Okay. And then I did a Mormon mission, went two year, went lived for two years in Brazil and, um, and applied to Eastman on the following fall, you know, mm -hmm. so came back in the spring made, and where I was in in the fall. Um, yeah. So all that happened. And then um, I definitely got into a fantastic practice routine at Eastman as well. Both my saxophone teachers there, the classical teacher and the jazz teacher, Walt Weisskopf, they were both like, here's your routine, here's your regime. Um, for my classical teacher, we always practiced the stuffs. He's, uh, I forget what, what uh, country he's from, but, but English is not his native language. Mm. And, and I think he'd say it as a joke. He's like, okay, so now you will play your stuffs for me. He's like, all right, <laughs> I'll do scale patterns, you know? I love it. Um, anyways, um, it wasn't until after my master's degree though, or during my master's degree that I really started learning how to practice smart. And I think mm -hmm. that's like a big point. Um, Cause I think smart practice really transformed my musicianship and abilities um, to closer to what they are now, then I, I think I, I think that was a, a huge change. And I, basically what happened is I started uh, pinpointing my own problems, you know, so teachers had told me various things and hinted at various things throughout, but the, but it, sometimes you just got, you you know you're playing the best sometimes and, and when you're mature enough and you're, and you're ready to tackle it, you just own it and you go, okay, that sucks. I'm actually going to fix that. Like that yeah. has bugged me over so many different performances or whatever it was or recitals or whatever. And now I'm going to actually get it. Uh -huh. And, uh, and so I would do my, I would do research. I would ask like, like, you know, look up what other saxophone teachers had taught about these, about these things. I would, uh, talk to everybody I could, you know, ask questions to teachers, to, to other students, anybody I could, um, and I would start devising my own solutions. I'd take the best of what everything I heard and I'd try to process it in my brain and put it all together. And I started making my own practice technique uh, exercises, you know, instead of doing oh, cool. some, you know, I would just create them myself. Mm -hmm. And I started actually solving a lot of my issues. Um, and that for me, that for me, that was like the biggest uh, change in my musicianship ever. It was like first, so it was like regular practice, but then, then the, the smart practice made an even bigger change. Mm -hmm. So, smart practice for you was pinpointing the problems. Was there anything else that you would? Yeah, so pinpointing the problems, then researching. I mean, you got you got to find the solutions. Mm -hmm. So there's the research aspect. There's the experimentation. So it's, it's not like you just research and all of a sudden the answer pops up. <laughs> Sometimes it does. That's yeah. nice when it does. It doesn't always. Sometimes you have to start experimenting with the things you're learning you know, and trying, trying different things and, and just testing it. I got into a habit of recording myself on a regular basis, mm -hmm. um, just with my phone or with a, with a portable recording device and listen back and I'd experiment with a thing and then I'd practice it. And then I'd listen back 
and mm -hmm. did it fix it? Was it better or was it the same or was it worse? And then I try a different thing and I just go through and then I still do that sometimes. Um, it's, it's a really helpful technique. Okay. You can so experimentation. I'm... Oh, I'm sorry. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it also sounds like you got to a point where you felt confident enough in your ability to play that you understood when you didn't sound good. Cause I think sometimes, at least for me, like I know that some of the times when I wouldn't fix something is because I really truly was playing it as well as I could. And I couldn't fathom how it b could be better, even though it could. And so like mm -hmm. coming from that position of like, I know what professional playing sounds like, and I know this isn't it and it's not mark making, making it to that bar. So how do I go back and fix it? I could be wrong. I'm, I'm not trying to put no, words in your mouth. No, that's a hundred percent part of the process. And, um, and I've, and that's something I wanted to talk about actually, because it's so important at different, at different points in my life, in my musical development, like I, maybe I play a concert and the concert I'd hear my sound back over the overhead speaker system. Like we'd be playing, we'd be playing mic'd as opposed to just in the room with the regular acoustics and hearing my sound, and my playing through that microphone, or through, sorry, sorry, through the microphone and the speakers had a completely different sound. Mm -hmm. And there were times that I remember that I wanted to cry out of like, <laughs> like sheer like pain, like, oh, that's what I sound like. And it's like a moment of discovery, right? And uh -huh. you don't hear it until you have another way of hearing it sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's been a big deal for me. Uh, another time uh, in the recording studio, um, that this is it was this big first recording session I ever did. Um, and you know, it's the day Chris Potter is going to come and it's going to be awesome. And I, we, we do our first, you know, he's not there yet. I do my first take of whatever song it is. And we go back to listen to it and I hear myself and I go, that's what I sound like, you know, I ha cause, cause the, I mean, for, for horn and woodwind playing, what you sound like in front of the horn can be very different than your experience behind the horn. I think it's a little, in piano playing, I find that I can hear more details in my, like I'm also, I also play some piano. And I find that when I play piano, um, I can hear more of things, more things way more accurately just because I'm getting the sound kind of similar to how everyone else does. But, but when I go back and listen to a recording of it, I definitely hear more details than I can process when I'm trying to both hear myself and control the music at the same time, control the performance. Anyway, so, okay, sorry. Yeah. So I, I heard back on the, on the, from the recording studio, I heard myself, like, that's what I sound like. And, and, and I was definitely depressed. Like it was definitely a moment of like, oh. And then, but then I saw the excitement of the day. So that kind of got me through it. And, and but when, when Chris Potter was there, I was like, man, like I'm just so unhappy with how I sound. What should I, you know? Can you tell me? And this was one of my moments. This was one of my first moments, I think, of this the smart practice moment. As like, what can I do? And he's like, well, you know what? This guy, this famous saxophone teacher, Joe Allard. I, you know, he's not around anymore, but I read a bunch of his stuff, and it really helped my playing. And I was like, okay. And that's when the spark went off, you know. And I and and I remember sitting at Smalls, which is this cool jazz club. It's open to like you know. 4 a.m. in the morning. I was like sitting there probably at midnight or 1 a.m. Mm -hmm. on my phone while there's some amazing band playing and on my phone reading all of the Joe Allard stuff that I can find mm -hmm. and try and, and, and then, you know, and, and that sent me on a journey. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so yeah, so mm -hmm. I find that, yes, hearing yourself um, and hearing it in a new way and, 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 and finding those new, uh, those new places to explore and, uh, and hearing what you actually do wrong is a huge, you know, people can tell you all day. In fact, I have, I have, I do this with students all the time. I'll tell them, 
okay, you're, you know, you're getting this kind of sound or something's wrong with the time in this way and you need to fix it. And, and I tell them what to do from my own experience. And yes, we fix it. And they go, and I go, so you can hear the difference there. They go, yeah, it sounds better. Um, but I, it sounds slightly better to me. Like it, it's not a huge change to me. Like on the other side, it's like a hundred percent difference, like night and day. And for them, it's like, oh, it's like a small change. And then of course they come back next week and most likely it's, it's, back. it's back to how it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So you have to learn how to hear it. You have I think to. It, I think it takes a lot of maturity to really look at yourself and mm-hmm. listen to yourself um, in a way that's, that is willing to accept that you can do better. Um, that it took a part of it for me personally was just like really not understanding because it's similar on a string instrument. What you get under your ear is not what people are going to get five or 10 or 15 feet away. And so understanding what is going to sound good to them isn't always what you want it to sound like under your ear. And, um, and, and it actually like one of those moments for me of where, you know, the, the switch flipped is when I was talking to a computer programmer who I happened to be dating at the time. And I was like, I'm really bad at this one shift. And he's like, so that means you're going to go practice it a hundred times. And I was like, why would I do that? It's hard. You know, like, why would I go do that? And he was just like, well, how else do you get better at it? And, yeah. you know, I was just like someone who doesn't even play an instrument, like understands <laughs> what you have to do to get better and it was just kind of one of those things where it's like why am I not doing this Mm -hmm. like we don't like to face those things that we know we're not good at so anyway yeah yeah the old adage of you like to practice what you sound good at but it's a waste (laughs) of time I'm not actually saying the adage in any kind of recognizable form but that idea that we like to play what we sound good at and that's probably not your practice that Mm -hmm. is going to help right usually anyways yeah, it's a, it takes a lot of maturity to yeah. stop practicing yeah. the things that sound good. So uh-huh. anyway. Yeah. So I'd kind of like to focus, switch and focus on Gravity Leak. Um, and I'll put a, a link, a Spotify link in the description so our listeners can go check it out. But we uh, maybe give a synopsis of the story or just kind of like an introduction to the motivation and the idea behind it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I... I've always enjoyed writing on some level. I didn't really recognize that I enjoyed writing a lot until I was an adult. Um, I think I turned in some essay at, when I was in my undergrad, just like analysis, musical analysis paper. And they were like, this is one of the best essays I've ever read. And it like hit me, I was like, oh, hey, like maybe I could write something, you know, at some point for some reason. And anyway, so I I got into writing as, as more of an adult and, and I really enjoy it. And I've written, um, I've written fictional things before, like, you know, I've, I've, I've tackled the small writing projects or even just enjoying creating other things like board games and, you know, like an ongoing saga of bedtime stories for my kids, you know, just any kind of like fun (laughs) creative practice like that. But anyways, so eventually I had this idea that I wanted to uh, write a full novel and that I wanted to have music that was kind of connected to it. Um, and, um, so the, the story that the story that I've written and it's in the, it's finished, basically I'm in the editing stages, um, uh, smaller edits now, and it's been proofread as well. So basically I'm looking into the future months here, next couple months, it'll be published. Um, but so the story is, it's a sci-fi story. Um, and basically there's these two main characters, uh, Tane and Anna who are good friends 
and uh, they're very different, but what they have in common is basically wanting to help the world. They're both interested in life. Um, the in the world they're in, it's like in the future, it's like the year 2137 or something like that. And the whole earth has kind of gone to crap. Like, you know, the environment, basically nothing grows. It's all dry and hot all the time. The air is not really breathable. If you go outside, you have to bring a respirator. Um, so, and, you know, and people try to experiment with with growing things outside and, and keeping animals and, and plant life, but it's just really hard. Anyways, and they both work at uh, a paludarium, which is this huge vivarium, a huge man-made structure. It's like a huge greenhouse, but not necessarily keeping things hotter than things outside. <laughs> Anyways, um, keeping it cooler so things can grow. Anyways, that's where they, that's that's kind of their, their, their commonality. And uh, anyways, so the so one of the characters, Tane, starts having these dreams, and in these dreams, this this uh, guy from another world is uh, he he says he's from another world. That's a real world. He's like, you know, I'm real, and I need your help. My people are basically going missing. My friends and family, they're they're going missing. Um, we think they're being uh, more or less kidnapped or taken by these invisible creatures that we call night grims because they only come at night. Um, and, and you have the potential to help us and then the dream, and it's still like a dream, you know, so it's like in and out to some degree and, and there's not a whole lot of time to like get explanations and all that, but he keeps having them over and over again to the point that it's like, he's never had recurring dreams. It's bugging him, talks to his, talks to his friends, you know, what's going on? What do you think I should be doing? Is this, do I need to see a psychologist? Like what's happening here? Um, but then the dreams start becoming reality in different ways. Uh -huh. Uh, in the world around him and in the way the dreams interact with reality and he goes, okay, what's going on? And then he takes a big risk because there's a chance to do something. He takes the big risk and it pays off. Um, and he and he and Anna and his other, and there's another friend, another main character, Cole, who's like the sciencey geek. Anyways, they travel to this new world, parallel world, um, and they help these people that, that that need this along the way they did they uh kind of develop new abilities because in this new world there's uh ways that your consciousness interacts with matter and other consciousnesses that aren't possible here because of law of physics but over there it's totally possible and uh, so they develop new abilities and discover things about themselves and about these night grims and it's a cool adventure uh the interesting thing is that they bring well, what, another interesting aspect about the story is that so basically this the first setting for the story is the future but this parallel world they're like stuck in like 1800s kind of technology hmm. they don't have all the same new technology so there's that aspect we're mixing kind of like this uh, like this fantasy kind of setting or steampunkish kind of setting with the sci-fi thing and that's, that's really cool. cool. Yeah, that is cool. It's a great plot. Yeah. So I'm I'm a little curious because I think we we at least for me I get stuck into just doing music, and I'm wondering if doing different creative things like writing has helped you in your music. Have you noticed anything at all like that? That's a great question. Has it helped me? Or, or or in something else like have you noticed a connection between doing creative things other than music that... well i mean you did mention earlier that when you get stuck in a rut that you mm -hmm. just move on to something else so just knowing that about you it would make sense that to to me that mm -hmm. you have written a novel and you're still a really successful musician mm -hmm. and and jazz musicians tend to be incredibly creative because mm -hmm. they're very good at being creative right on the spot 
from improvisation, but. That does feel connected to me. Um, the act of writing itself, I'm not sure if the act of writing has affected my musicianship. However, I do feel like it affects what I feel validated in creating. Hmm. So for so let so I I think I told you the story before Andrew but let me tell you so what initially got me onto the idea of connecting a story and music was um was back in so it's it actually anyway it's a few years it was, it was a number of years ago and I wrote I was you know I was writing this shorter fictional story and I was also writing music for my band. I had a band in Philadelphia, uh, a quartet, guitar, sax, drums, and bass, super fun. Um, and one of the songs that I wrote for them had this really dark vibe. And I forget if it was as I was writing it or if even before I was writing, but I think it was as I was writing it, I realized that the vibe that it created was this really kind of intense, um, kind of dark sound that connected with a moment in the story that I was writing. And the moment in the story, the, the, and so the song got titled Into the Furnace. And it's, and it's this moment in the story where the main character, the plucky young whoever, uh, decides to climb into a nuclear furnace, an old super like steampunk version of nuclear furnace, mm -hmm. and sacrifice himself in order to save the world. Basically, that was the, that's kind of like the high point, the climax of the book. It's kind of a sad one, whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyways, and so I'm writing this, I'm writing this song, and it like has this like uh, five, eight, four, eight, uh, shifting mm. time signature feel, but it's like all punctuated with uh, these um, uh, like heavy, like basically rock power ballad kind of like almost like a metal kind of uh, pulses. It's like dun 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 dun. You know, it's it's kind of this heavy this heavy sounding thing, and then the melody's all super chromatic, and the harmony's super dense or somewhat dense. It's it's pretty intense. Anyways, but I and and it matched that right, and so I play that at uh, one of my recitals for my doctoral degree, and my sweet my sweet mother in law, who enjoys music a lot, but. Uh, whose ear I would think would be more attracted to like church music and maybe, and, and, and some classical music, more like classical era, classical music. Um, and definitely not heavy, definitely not like metal and definitely not like crazy modern shifting time signature jazz. Um, anyway, so, I, so she comes up to me and she says, that was my favorite song of the, wow. of the whole thing. And, um, and it, and it hit me and I was like, wow, that's incredible that that made a connection for her. And I mean, I had explained the story a little bit before mm -hmm. I played the song, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that that inspired me to go, okay, I wanna do more of this. I wanna create this connection because I feel like I can express myself as wildly creative, creatively as I'd like to. Um, and, and, but not, not, just, not just for the sake of being crazy, but for the sake of doing what I want to do, what I hear. And it can not just be justified, but connected to, you know, and people have done this right forever, right? Opera, um, movies, there's, there's always this interesting connection between music and, uh, and, and other art forms that kind of makes the music, you can get, you can get crazier with the music and it's, and it feels like it's totally justified and, and part of an integral whole. So that's, with, that's an inspiring moment there. With writing Gravity Leak, did you write the novel first or the music or was it um, a symbiotic type relationship? Yeah, definitely okay. symbiotic. Yeah, so I started writing the initial plot for Gravity Leak 
like I want to say like nine to 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I got so far in it. And then I get and like with all my, not all my huge projects is like, it comes to a stopping point and I need to do something else, you know? And so I went away from it and I think I came back a few years later, like two years later and rewrote it into the, to the beginning of what it is now. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I started my doctor, doctoral degree and I started taking composition lessons and I was like, oh, I want to tackle the music. Mm-hmm. And I had the plot more or less planned out. I had a lot of the plot planned out. Um, and I knew the characters, you know, to some degree, um, especially the two main characters. And uh, and I wasn't working on the novel at that point, except mentally, mm-hmm. um, but I worked on all the music um, and I finished composing and I put together this fantastic band that uh, Eastman allowed me to do. It was great. And we recorded there at the studio in Eastman at, at the school. And, uh, and then after that, the project sat for a, for a couple, for a couple of years, for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. I think it just kind of sat there um, until the summertime. And I went back and I met with the one of the engineers and we finished uh, part of the editing and mixing stuff that we needed to do. And then I sent it along to a, uh, the next musician who's going to mix and master it. Mm-hmm. And I go, okay, now I have to make a choice. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to write a novel and I have this whole idea and it's going to be super awesome. And now I have to do it. Yeah. So I chose to do it. So sitting in the pet band games or in the basketball games with the pet band on my phone, <laughs> writing my novel in between timeouts mm-hmm. and uh, on the weekends and at nighttime. And I and I set some goals for myself. Like I, I want to have 10,000 words done every week, you know, wow. or 3000, maybe, maybe 3000. <laughs> anyway, whatever, 4,000, whatever. It was a realistic goal. It wasn't 10,000 is unrealistic. That would be like 10 weeks and the book's done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyways. Yeah, and I and I worked over I worked on it over the course of the last uh, year and some. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a great COVID project. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did I did get some extra work done during COVID. Uh-huh. I did. Anyways, so, so I'm a little curious because I've never had bouts of composing experiences where like music just comes into my head. But how does how does the composing process work for you? Okay, sometimes it is easy and sometimes it is more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, I mean, I, I guess I would start with the more difficult side of things because that is where a lot of us tend to be. And if we want to be, if we want to compose or create music and we feel uh, and we feel stifled or we don't feel like there's anything there necessarily, uh, that's, this is an important place to start, you know, to be able to, to be able to get something on the page. So uh, some exercises that I've come across um, are basically uh, like composing exercises where you just, you write a melody. You just have to, like, you can limit yourself to the white notes on the keyboard. Sometimes I, um, sometimes I will just decide, I'm just going to come up with a cool, with a cool riff, a cool baseline kind of riff, you know, something funky that that makes me want to dance a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that's my starting place. And then I can start building on top of that. Or I like this chord progression. Let me come with something or, okay, so I'm going to force myself to come up with a melody that I enjoy and I'll tweak it and tweak it. And maybe I get eight bars worth of melody in that day. And that's all I get. Um, But then I have that and I can build on that. So for me, it's about getting something on the page and same thing with actually with writing this book too. Some days are, you know, some days it's like, Oh, this is so easy to write. I have all the ideas for the story. All the details are coming. Other days it's just like, 
oh, what does this character want to say again? (laughs) What? Uh You know, um, but, and you just force yourself to get the basic outline of whatever it is that you, you know, because you know what you aesthetically kind of, you or you can know aesthetically what you want. You can pick a vibe that you're going for, for a, for a feeling, for a, for a general sound, and you can get a, a rough draft of it on a page. Mm-hmm. And that's what, and then I'm, I'm, I've developed the skills over, over lots of time is going through it mm-hmm. and over and over again until I really like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, cool. that has gotten me through dry spells. Mm-hmm. Um, that's cool. Yeah. Other times, sometimes stuff is just easy. Um, and you, you, I just hear stuff in my head. I'm just like, oh, that's what I'm writing right now. Mm-hmm. Yay. Do you usually do compose at the piano? I compose at the piano more than at the saxophone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also compose at finale mm-hmm. uh, a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I also have a little 10, like two octave MIDI controller mm-hmm. that I plug in the computer that serves as half a piano, mm-hmm. not even half. <laughs> one, one <eighth> of piano. <laughs> anyways um and that can that can be helpful um i, f- I find a lot of times that what i really want to do though is i want to just hear it in my head first and then make it come out on an you know and and, and sometimes sometimes i'm good sometimes i can just hear what you know my oral skills are the level where i can just do it and sometimes it's like nope well let's try that again let's try that again if i if i don't have this stuff in my head first uh then I really need to be at an instrument to, mm-hmm. to get something going. Okay. Sure. Cool. Well, that's really cool. I'll definitely, I gave it a little listen, but I'll make sure to listen through that uh, album and you, the listeners can listen to the too. It will be in the description. Is it called yeah. Gravity Leak as well? Yeah. Yeah, the album's called Gravity Leak. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, Andrew, you'd asked if we could play any of it for the listeners. Uh-huh. I don't know if you want to give them a little bit of a sneak sure. peek. or yeah. I'll, Cool. I'll, I'll edit one in. So the second and third movements that are like this combined track and track two on the album, is, it's called Gravity Lake. It's like, cause it's like the, mm-hmm. it's kind of like the feature in between uh, the first movements, kind of like a uh, intro to two of the characters. And then the last movement is exploring this theme of, it's a canon, it's a jazz canon, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's offset at the, uh, at a dotted quarter note. So you have all your eighth notes coming in syncopated or on, you know, it's a mm-hmm. big polyrhythmic crazy thing. Um, and it's also offset by a fifth, which gets all these sweet harmonies. It's kind of mm-hmm. cool. Anyways, but that's kind of exploring one of the themes in the book that it's like all about um, teamwork, especially between Tane and Anna and the, the two of them working off, working together and overcoming their obstacles and stuff. But anyway, so the middle movement is, is supposed to be, or the middle two movements is supposed to basically tell the arc of the story. The first part is about them um, discovering this kind of portal between the worlds and then traveling through it. And then they have this kind of like, they, basically they have to eventually, spoiler alert, they have to fight the Nightgrims. Surprise, mm-hmm. they have to fight the bad guys. Mm-hmm. They do fight the bad guys. That fight scene is kind of depicted by uh, trading between the guitar, mm-hmm. between a guitar solo and a saxophone solo. And we cool. really go at it and kind of tear each other apart. It's super fun. <laughs> um, yeah. And then after that, the that goes to the other movement basically. And the other movement is the slower, kind of but still mysterious and crazy sounding thing um and that's supposed to represent a part in the uh in the book where they explore yet another world that has that has to do with the night crims and everything that's going on with with them and so there's another another place i don't want maybe i'll just kind of 
I think I think maybe in the title of it, I used to have the name in the title, which was basically like Angel in Darkness. Mm-hmm. And it's just, and, and it has to do with death and the afterlife. And maybe that's plenty of spoiler for you. Mm-hmm. Anyways, and so there's that section where they have to they have to deal with that part of it. Um, and then it wraps up the whole the whole uh, the whole track wraps up by returning to the material from the from the earlier movement as kind of representing them traveling back to the portal and going back to their regular world and, and all that. final questions that we want to ask you and Angela will you ask the first question um I am always curious when I talk to people who it seems like they've achieved a lot of the things that they've set out to do with their life um I'm sure there's plenty more that you want to do but you've clearly achieved a lot um up to this point um I'm always curious to know what you consider your greatest accomplishment and it's not career-based just in general yeah, just in general, my greatest accomplishment. Yes. Um, so that's a heavy question. That's a very deep <laughs> question. I mean, I think I think there are definitely some amazing things that have happened in with my the growth and uh, and kind of adventures and struggles that my own family has had. I have a wife, and we have uh, nine children now. Nine. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How Sorry, do you it's have a time to one. write a book? <laughs> Holy um, moly. I don't know. I don't know. It's, but it works. It's like it's like after you have five of them, there's just more. You, know you just I mean? keep like, taking care of one another. Yeah. It's a yeah, thing. I'm, yeah. Anyways. Um, and yeah, and so there's been a lot of growth and wonderful things that have happened and great opportunities for my kids. And I'm really that I'm very proud of how our families handle everything. So that's like the touchy feely emotional mm-hmm. side that that I mean honestly is a very deep part of my life. Um, and then it's funny, I was thinking about answering this question in terms of career, but mm-hmm. I was still going to be on the kind of family side. Actually, one of my, I think the most important accomplishment that I've done career-wise is simply getting a full-time teaching uh, college music job. 
that mm-hmm. that has been uh, that has been uh, so important to just being able to have a nice stable life and and be able to have a, you know support my family and enjoy and have a job that I that is consistent that I love you know I get to mm-hmm. teach write play music all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were a student and you know not a professional. Is that what your end goal was, or did it change because of life? So I I went to college with a very nebulous idea of what I would do. I knew I wanted to do music in college. I had examples of musicians around me. My band teacher was a great jazz drummer who worked professionally before mm. he was a teacher, and also then he just kept playing. I had military musicians around me. Um, one of our family friends was like the dedicated music instrument repair guy mm-hmm. at uh at the at one of the military bases we were at and he was also a professional performing musician um i had had military musicians as my teachers you know i had private lesson teachers sure. i had anyway i just had all these examples i had no idea what i was going to do mm-hmm. i mean I, I i wanted to perform for sure but right. it, was, it was pretty nebulous so I, I and my dad tried to convince me otherwise wisely he said ben i want to talk to you you know, it's really hard to like have a stable career as uh, as a musician. Are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, Yeah, I'm sure. So <laughs> that was the whole thing. That was the whole conversation. He tried hard. He tried hard. I just shut him down right away. Um, anyways, I got married uh, in uh, after my first year at Eastman, and my wife already uh, had two children from an earlier marriage, and they were when we got married, they were two and four at the time. And I had to start, and when we were planning on getting married, I knew that I had to have a serious plan for life now. Like I couldn't yeah. just be like, whatever happens, happens. <laughs> um, and so I immediately switched my, not, but I immediately started focusing on getting uh, a college teaching job. That was, that was my focus after my master's. So I went straight on to a master's degree and then I applied for every single teaching position I could get, uh, that I could apply for. Um, after my master's degree and I ended up with a my first job was a part-time teaching position teaching a lecture class on American music at a podunk community college it's a great community college that I went there was but it was a small small college in uh, Pottstown Pennsylvania place mm-hmm. you haven't probably even heard of it's like 45 minutes out of Philadelphia um, and then I got a number of like other part-time teaching positions around the area and at colleges and private lessons. And I even drove a limo in the summer sometimes because mm-hmm. I had a connection there with a wedding, uh, a wedding band that I played with who also had a limo service. And <laughs> I was just doing everything and anything I could. And finally I was like, okay, I think I need a doctorate. Yeah. Um, and so I went for the doctorate and mm-hmm. anyways. Okay, cool. Yeah. What, lastly, what are some tools that you advise our listeners to put in their toolbox? Um, so tools. So some of the things that I think are uh, really important in life are providing yourself with uh, great growth opportunities, um, setting up setting up any kind of high requirement performance for yourself as long as you're up to the task of preparing for it, and then uh, whether you know whether that's recording session or or just like a concert, and then recording it and really going over it and facing, like we were talking about earlier, facing your flaws and, and digging in. Um, that has happened for me just because it, it happened, but I've, I've since recognized it as a very important growth tool. Um, another, another important one that I definitely wanted to say is um, 
just setting up that kind of smart reviewing that reviewing that idea of setting up a smart practice routine of of um you know focusing in your practice on things that you know are making you better that you that you are experimenting with and researching and figuring out how it you know and and that's the other thing because you know you hear about these excellent exercises from different great teachers and everything and and a lot of times they were designed with a specific problem in mind and your problem might be a little different and all that all that kind of stuff so so feeling confident enough to basically design your own pedagogy and your teachers who whoever you're studying with um, probably are telling you exactly the things that are wrong with your playing and they're probably giving you solutions that work for them and right. There and anyways, and there might be better solutions for you or similar solutions, and and just feel free to uh, try to make yourself better on, on not just on your own terms, but but using your own independent uh, exploratory self will kind of uh, kind of journey. Definitely. Cool. Thank well, thanks so again. Much. We've enjoyed this interview. Thanks <laughs> for too. joining us. Yeah. yeah thank you for the opportunity, guys. What a great interview. Thank you so much for listening and watching. And we truly hope that you have found some tools to put in your toolbox. Our podcast, as a reminder, can be found on various platforms as well as on YouTube. Once again, feel free to send us a DM or voice message with anything that you'd like to see in the future. Um, We often post announcements and upcoming guests on our social media. So if that's interesting to you, you should go and give us a follow. Yeah, we would love some follows. And lastly, while we do love doing this for free, podcasting is not free. So if you really like what we're doing and have uh, gained some value from our show, there are a few ways that you can support us. You could share with your friends. You could rate and review. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You could also shop our merch, uh, which you might have seen in our YouTube videos, or become a supporter through a donation at the Anchor Podcast link in the show notes below. Thanks for watching. See you later.